this is Mighty Oaks, a programme about age. I'm Owen Handen, and this week episode 11, titled Dance of Years, in which a folk duo of 40 years continue to find fulfilment in their music. Leo O'Kelly and Sonny Condal's folk band, Tiernanog, enjoyed great success in the 1970s. They toured with some of the most notable bands of the time. Now, at a time when some of those bands are touring again, Tiernanog are experiencing a revival of their own, particularly on the English folk circuit that they first travelled 40 years ago. Dance all you cockle shells The baby sleeps, his hands are still And now we all can dance until I suppose the starting point for me was playing with my cousin who lived across the adjoining farms in County Wicklow, my my cousin John, who sadly is, is no longer with us. This is Sonny. And we used to get together and... We attempted to write, start writing songs together. Well, again, separately, like Leo and I are separate songwriters, really. But John and I would go into the folk clubs in Dublin, the Universal Folk Club and the Coffee Kitchen, especially, were really uh, important in our musical education, where you could go along and sing three songs as a, as a floor singer in front of people and you'd be really well listened to there's no drink or anything like that it was just coffee and things soup and things like that biscuits in the uh, interval and they'd go on for hours and lots of all sorts of folk songs and original stuff as well and that was the beginning really for me just learning to stand up in front of people without being too shy about it and gradually getting more confidence and hearing other people and watching other people how they played and it was a huge learning experience and I think that was really important and I sort of wish there was a bit more of that going on these days for, for younger people. So that was the beginning for me. It's slightly different for Leo, I think. Well, similar in a way, we'll say from 69 when, when I moved to Dublin. Before that, I'd been playing for five years in show bands in Carlo and, and beat groups in the tropical show band and, and the word beat group. And then in 69, I moved to Dublin and I joined the Emmett Spiceland. At first, it was replacing Donald Lunny, and soon after that, he came back to the band. So we toured America, Canada with Donald. That was a fantastic lineup of the Emmett Spiceland, you know, so that was really, really intensive work. And now we all can dance until. The first time we met was in Carlow where John, my cousin and myself were doing a gig in a place called Carpenters in Carlow town and we met Leo there and he actually borrowed my guitar I think I'm right in saying and yeah. um, sang a couple of songs during the interval. We were actually replacing another band that couldn't make it that night and uh, that's where we first met Leo and he, he met us and then not long after that we met again in Dublin and went to the probably the coffee kitchen I would imagine yeah, that it was, folk it was club. the first 
It was the first folk club I'd heard of. I was walking down Grafton Street and Sonny and his cousin, his cousin Joan were driving down Grafton Street. But it was when you could drive down Grafton Street and they just pulled up beside me and said, Hey, Leo, you, you, you want to go to a folk club? So that was that was my first folk club. Uh, and that was the coffee kitchen in Molesworth Street. So it wasn't so much writing together because we never wrote together even since we didn't. I think we tried it one day and it didn't work. So, but I think from the point of view of playing together soon after that, I'd say that was late 69 or middle of 69, something like that. In 1970, we decided, Sonny and myself decided to go to England and I think John was going originally and so just safety in numbers, myself and Sonny went over. Well, ideally, we thought as well as two solo acts, but we'd play together here and there. And it just took off so well together, we didn't bother doing any solo gigs. I think the first gig we got was in a, in a bar in uh, Allgate. Mm. And... Um, they give us a Saturday and Sunday night, a, a, re, a little residency. When you're looking up, I see the sun's reflection in your dark blue eyes. When you're looking down, the same sun, sun, some shine and silver streams through your golden hair. And we were always very thrilled with the way our music went down even though we were just two acoustic guitars and uh, I think a, a clavinet, a piano, sort of a keyboard and drums, bongos and light percussion and that sort of thing. But it seemed to make a real mark with the people and uh, got a great reception always. So it went from strength to strength really and we got started getting a lot of our own gigs and um, we got our own van and equipment and uh, driver and started doing things and like huge amount of uh, work all, all over England and then the tours brought us elsewhere like one of the tours we did we started in Bergen and ended up in Rome with uh, Jethro Tull and Progel Harm I think it was you know it began to be hard work <laughs> but we saw a lot of places and it was hugely exciting you know we were 21, 22 that sort of age and it was interesting To give you some idea that particular first gig we, we did that first residency we got and we actually managed to get it on the very first day we arrived. And the place itself was actually on Petticoat Lane, and it was called The Bell. This was May 1970. And October 1970, we were able to invite the owner and his family to see us in the Royal Albert Hall, playing support with Prokel Harm and, and Jethro Tull. So it was that quick from a bar to the Royal Albert Hall in the space of a couple of months. The first day we got that gig, then we went to a party that night. This is literally the, you know, the day we arrived in London with no place to stay, no contacts. And somebody invited us to a party that night. We just got chatting to a guy. He said, what are you doing over here? We said, we came over to look for a record contract. And he said, look, I work in a recording studio. I'll bring you in, make a demo. And so that's what we did. So within two weeks, we had a recording contract with Chrysalis Records. And this is all from our very first day in London. Yeah, we played with a, quite a number of different fairly high-profile bands. I suppose really it was very exciting. I mean, it was, um, it was inspirational to see, especially very well-organised bands like Jethro Tull playing and how they performed and 
it was nerve-wracking. I remember the first gig we did on one of the tours. Like, we were on the same record company as uh, Chrysalis Record Company was that Jethro Tull were on. And so it was a kind of a package from the record company, a, a tour. I think it was Sheffield Town Hall. Yeah. And I remember I was holding bongos between my knees and my knees were shaking so much. I hardly put any pressure inwards, you know, on my knees because I was uh, really, really scared. Uh, I was just nervous and, and looking at the the line of exit lights, you know, on the on the balconies, the, the tiers of the theatre going up and it's just, it was... It was scary, but uh, you know, again, a real fast learning curve, and you know, playing to big crowds. But like, we did lots of gigs with Elton John and and toured with Cat Stevens, as well as all the time doing our own gigs in colleges and clubs as well. At the same time, but there's hardly anybody we didn't play with at, at the time, from Roxy Music to The Who. Emerson, Lake and Palmer, Jethro Tull, Elton John, Rory, Rory Gallagher, you know, you name it. I mean, more. I, I think there's only one or two we didn't play with, really. did one gig in Leeds and this was with Emerson, Lake and Palmer and anyway we arrived and we were always at the mercy of whatever band you might whatever big band might have been on and Emerson, Lake and Palmer's already said no you don't use our gear sort of thing so we thought what are we going to do enormous big hall so somebody in the entertainment department said well we've got this little disco system and like that was just two little speakers and one or two microphones so in front of this enormous crowd, for instance, and we just went down a storm and kind of went, nah, 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 to Emerson, Lake and Palmer. <laughs> yeah, they had so much gear, like it filled a huge, like a huge stage with a completely yeah. packed, there wouldn't be a room to stand on the stage hardly, you know. But it was very funny. Yeah, really. I think, I think it, was, it was a bit like, a bit like Cape Canaveral, I remember thinking yeah. at the time, yeah. looking at, at Keith Emerson's, Emerson's computer. I was like, there were... LEDs counting down, click, click, click. One of our very first gigs was in East London the summer we arrived, and that was with Hawkwind. I think that was the, the, the only time we experienced the. Well, we didn't experience, but we sort of looked at the sex, drugs, and rock and roll happening simultaneously. Well, there wasn't very much of it, apart from Hawkwind, really, there was, it wasn't a lot. All the Jethro Tull tours now, we did We did three big Jethro Tull tours in England and all over Europe. And there was hardly a drink taken, let yeah. alone anything else. Mm-hmm. It was frowned on. Mm-hmm. Everything was very on time. You know, we stood at the stage half past seven, the manager counted down, almost the seconds, you're on, 7.30. It wasn't 25 to 8. And same thing leaving in the morning, you know, the elevator opened at nine o'clock if you're to be there in the lobby at nine and it was nine it wasn't a minute past nine so it was very disciplined really my boat moved 
doubt to see And friends grew small from me Waving from the Until it just got a little bit, a little bit too much, and it might have been affecting the writing. Really, playing seven nights a week aimlessly, at some points. I mean, it was great when we were on tour, on a tour tour. At the same time, other other times we'd be up and down the motorway, literally every night. So it, after a while, we did think, what are we doing? And I think that's why we took a, a little break, and it dropped our record company. <laughs> One of our last gigs now in England with Steelite Span, and I remember thinking, "Oh, I'm really unhappy now." I remember going out and, and kicking the van, kicking a hole in my guitar case, and thinking, "Oh, this is—it's just gone beyond the beyonds now." Uh, and it's not that we're afraid of work, because we we love work. But at the same time, it was just too much and it just seemed too aimless, really. You know, we were making a few quid, which is fantastic. But at the same time, we had to evaluate that against our, our personal freedom, if you like. Mm. So we, we went separate ways and um, I think you went, you lived in London for a while. And, yeah, in and Holland. For Holland. A while. And I went back back here, back to to Dublin, to Dublin, and started doing uh, things. Um, and I think at that stage, um, formed the band Scullion, and uh, have been doing that ever since as well. So that that uh, happens now and again. We do little little jaunts around the place, mostly in Ireland. Well, completely in Ireland, really. Well, we did some fairly long Scullion tours as well, yeah, throughout the country. We played in an awful lot of places as well, so it wasn't that sedate. <laughs> it was hard, hard work as well, and we did, uh, I think it was three albums. So there's a lot of writing and playing and um, working away, which was great. And there, was, there was various other influences, like our first album had pipes and flutes and things like that, that uh, talking about Scullion now. Um, which was a different thing. It was like a, an element of the of the traditional music coming in, which I I never really would have known anything about. I still don't really. I admire it uh, from a distance, but but it it was an influence. Like I wrote a song called "The Catch You Went to Hunting," which was kind of traditional in in its tempo or its its rhythms and things like that. But that's as it was just an influence, you know. And then there was a time when that band became with bass and drums and so it became more like a rock band for a short while people came and went and you know the usual breakups and reformations and people leaving and you know the usual but kept on writing and as i say finding new vehicles for the songs that sort of thing well i did return to ireland for a while well i did a lot of record production for emi and some for polydor like the first loudest whisper album which uh, it seems to be it's one of the most valuable albums in the world. I should have got paid in LPs, I think, rather than money. 
and things like that. Well, several albums for EMI as well, mostly for folk bands and for folk artists. And something I always wanted to do, having been in in recording studios, I thought it was fascinating, but maybe it wasn't quite as fascinating as I thought so. After half a dozen albums or so, I thought that's plenty. Hey friend, you're losing All the things you have Hey friend, you're losing Don't you think it's time to grab Everything you want while you can I think this lot over the last couple of years it was instigated by a space rock festival in Wales called Sonic Rock Solstice and for some reason these people really wanted us on their festival so we thought okay built a little very short tour just a few days around that and the reaction was so fantastic even at the space rock festival you know you know people were coming up and say fantastic sort of thing and like all the other bands are like Hawkwind the Groundhogs you know that kind of thing this would be more recently now just the last three years or so that's what brought us back into more more regular playing and since then it's just grown and grown and grown which is fantastic so we've been doing everything I say from festivals to folk clubs to art centres to everything you can imagine really also another factor was the the internet and that sort of communication made us aware that there was still uh, a market we kind of felt that there must have been people who would have remembered us in England uh, but up to this time we hadn't really made any big connections with agents or promoters in England we didn't know what was possible in England really with the internet and that network happening and the space rock thing was all, all happened really because of the internet and that really got the ball rolling again I think which is quite remarkable So this year and now we've already done four tours of England England and Wales and next year looks similar you know we've already got the bones of a few tours already set up and now, now it's the, the more we do, the more the network seems to spread and each gig we meet people who suggest, oh, we have a little festival going on, you should try that, and that, that sort of thing. And especially our, our friend Pete Needham in, in, uh, in Derbyshire helps us kind of, um, and Leo does a lot of that work as well, uh, the, contacting people and making the network happen, tying things down, uh, making arrangements. Uh, like Pete and his wife do an awful lot of put a lot of thought into it and um, arranging things in some ways it's better but we've got an awful lot more gear and effects and stuff you know nowadays with echoes and distortions and this and that and the other sort of thing electronic drums and and that kind of thing and that makes it not not quite as easily uh, as easily done like we used to just literally come along with two guitars and a set of bongos and just just turn up you know, before Emerson, Lake and Palmer. Ronan Collins played us on his show in the morning and there was an old curry man who must have been getting ready to go to England on the plane, heard us on the radio and he said, I'll go to that. So he turned up at the gig, old man with a stick, and he said, I've come all the way. He said, sorry, we're totally sold out, totally full up. And he said, I came all the way from Ireland. He said, they still wouldn't let me in. 
he said, I had to show them my boarding pass from the plane before they let me in. Oh, and so that was good. He was the oldest one at our gig, mind you. <laughs> it's happened in a very organic way. Uh, it was when we were in London and uh, we played in the Half Moon in Putney there a month or two ago and somebody approached us from Fruits de Mer record company and wanted us to put out a mini album and that's coming out in April and that, that'll grow into a bigger album. But again, we were approached from outside and we thought, yeah, that's great. That'll, you know, that fits in ni- nicely with what we're doing. So, so we didn't even have to plan too hard about that, really. Uh, it's fantastic. We're going to be on tour again, on a virtual tour with Ian Anderson from Jethro Tull after 40 years. In fact, last week in London, they filmed our gig to show some songs before Ian Anderson's solo world tour. And that'll be going on for two years, so people won't be able to avoid us. <laughs> yeah, it was a, it was a nice um, return, in a way, to the Jethro Tull camp. We actually did a gig in Dublin with Jethro Tull recent year before last, was it? Yeah, Something March like before it. last. Yeah, and, and that was a kind of reconnection with that camp, as it were. So... This was a continuation of that, which we were very gratified that they, they thought of having us on the show. They had um, they will have Fairport Convention doing the same thing, a, vir- a virtual uh, support gig as well. So it's just great, you know, to be going around the world with him again. <laughs> we tend to fall on our feet. Very, It's, uh, it's quite a strange thing, really. Uh, it's true. Uh, things happen to us, really, which, which is great. And... We try, I think, to respond to them in a strong way, you know. Uh, it's, it's exciting, really. I think remarkably little change for me in a lot of ways. I just, you know, I, well, I, well, I just love, I love playing. So, so it's fantastic. I, I always look forward to a gig. So there's, it's remarkably little changed in a lot of ways. It, it should, it should be changed much more in so, I think, but not, you know, the joy, I think the joy of playing is still there. Yeah. Like, I suppose people could become cynical, you know, but I would agree with Leo, like, it's, I still get quite nervous in a quiet sort of way before each gig, and each, every day is a build-up to the gig, you know, if you're playing that night, and all that same feeling is exactly as it was, um... And a joy, it's a real joy to stand up in front of people and sing these songs and uh, feel the reaction. And like these tours we're doing in England, it actually comes to us all the time how important all those songs are for people and the albums, what they mean to people. It actually means something very definite to people. The music brings them, brings them somewhere that is a, a good place. So it's great to be able to, to plug into that again and, and do that again. Well, we've been described as all sorts of things by other people. An Irish Simon and Garfunkel, a gentle T-Rex. And we've been put in the prog folk, space folk, psych folk, acid folk. We've been recently voted in Shindig magazine, very cool magazine, in Shindig's magazine of top 20 all-time acid folk albums. So... I don't know what we are. It's it's two guys with guitars, basically. There was a great change even from our first album, second to third, and they came a year after each other. 
Uh, so there naturally is a change, but I, I think there's a certain certain thread that I think will be identifiable with it. It's, it's it's the combination and and some songs some songs we have harmonies that are distinctive enough even though they're very simple and just the combination of of both our songwriting really somehow or other the the music is uh, sounds a bit big-headed to say but of a of a sort of timeless rather than of um, of a fad or a, a style that's going at the time and. I don't know why that is, but it's the way we write, I guess, which is is not fadism, but it's it's ourselves. It's a unique sound. It's a combination of voices and guitars and a simplicity, perhaps. Not overcomplicated music, really. He quickly changed into an Asian man And ne'er again Laid eyes on And that's it for this week's show. Mighty Oaks was produced and edited by me. Our theme tune is Cantina Rag by Jackson F. Smith. This episode featured songs from Tiernan Oaks' self-titled 1971 debut album. The duo's new five-track EP will be released on vinyl by London-based Fruit de Mer Records in April 2014. Details of upcoming Tiernan gigs and solo gigs by Sonny and Leo can be found on their website, Leo O'Kelly's solo album, Will, is available from his website, leooakelly.ie. Sonny Condal's solo album, Swallows and Farms, is available on Amazon. To listen back to the entire Mighty Oaks series, just go to soundcloud.com slash mightyoaks. To subscribe to Mighty Oaks as a podcast, go to feeds.feedburner.com slash mightyoakspodcast or search for Mighty Oaks in iTunes. If you have any thoughts about the show, email us at mightyoaksradio at gmail.com. This is my final Mighty Oaks episode. I hope you've enjoyed the series as much as I've enjoyed producing it. I'm Owen Hanlon. Thanks very much for listening.